So the Reverend Billy Graham tells of a time early in his ministry when he arrived in a small town to preach a sermon. Wanting to mail a letter, he asked the young boy where the post office was. When the boy had told him, Dr. Graham thanked him and said, hey, if you come by the Baptist church this evening, you can hear me telling everyone how to get to heaven. The boy thought about it for a second and he replied, I don't think I'll be there. You don't even know your way to the post office. <laughs> and all the teens and young adults in the room right now are wondering why Dr. Graham didn't just type in their phones, post office near me. <laughs> so this morning, we had the amazing privilege of ordaining and installing elders and deacons as leaders in the life of this congregation, recognizing their leadership skills, their desire to serve others, and their hearts for God. As Presbyterians, we have this really cool model of lay leadership, where as a body, we recognize spiritual gifts in others and in turn, ordain them as spiritual leaders of us all, trusting in their decisions and caretaking for us and for our community. What's even cooler is that we actually ordain lay people. We don't just appoint. And very few denominations do this, actually ordain people into the leadership of their congregations. One definition for the word ordain is to confer holy orders upon. In other words, the nominating committee, as well as the elder or deacon saying yes to serve, was discerning of God's call and his hand upon their lives, and in so doing, have now received their holy orders to serve. And now, as a congregation, we expect them to do so. We expect them to show up. We expect them to lead and to serve and to care and to minister. And in turn, they expect us to respect their decisions, to encourage them with our prayers, and to trust that they are cultivating their own discipleship of Jesus Christ as they encourage us all to do the same. While doing a little research on the history of the ordination of laity, I did a Google search and came across this great article called What Are Lay Leaders? written by a guy named Billy Kangas. After reading his article, and being the well-trained research seminarian that I am, I had to find out who this author was to make sure that what he had to say was legit. I was basically checking out his street cred. Upon reading up on his credentials and biography, I discovered he is the director of community engagement at a place called the Hope Clinic in Southeast Michigan. Huh, this sounds kind of cool. I wondered where exactly in Southeast Michigan. So I clicked on the link that took me to the Hope Clinic website. And upon seeing their logo, I thought it looked incredibly familiar. Where have I seen that logo before? Oh yeah, it's on the business card of the author himself sitting in right, right in front of my computer as I was reading this article. It turns out, Pastor Kelly met Billy Kangas at a meeting of Livonia Cares just two weeks ago. And somehow, after a nondescript Google search, here I was reading his blog on the necessity of lay leaders in the local church. I think we have here what Dave Laycock calls a God week. So I'm thinking one of us need to give this guy a call this week. 
So what our soon-to-be newfound friend and hopeful ministry partner said in his article was this. God has given the clergy every gift they need to minister to the people, but more often than not, that gift is found in the members of the congregation, not in themselves. And this statement couldn't be more true, and it highlights the brilliance of the leadership structure of the Presbyterian Church. Yes, those of us who are clergy, who are true to God's calling on our lives, we have our own gifts for ministry, but we cannot, we cannot, nor should we, do it alone. Because the combined gifts of an entire body far outweigh the gifts of one or two people. Those who created the leadership structure of the Presbyterian Church were brilliant in recognizing the necessity of the body of Christ working together for the sake of the kingdom, not just the clergy. And they took it a step further in recognizing spiritual gifts in others, and that is where ordination's significance comes into play. It is a holy calling with holy orders. And don't forget, it's a lifetime ordination, my friends. And as members of the body of Christ, as ordained leaders of the body of Christ, there is an expectation that you, for your lifetime, will continue to lead and serve God's people, whether you're currently sitting on a board or not. Now, for those who have yet to be called to the ordained lay ministry of the church, you are not off the hook. Far from it. Our buddy Billy goes on to say this, to be a Christian is to be one who is at one time both greatly in need to receive God's grace and greatly called to demonstrate God's grace. All Christians are ordained into the ministry of reconciliation that Christ has done, is doing, and promises to do. All Christians are ordained into the ministry of reconciliation that Christ has done. Quite simply, because Jesus is who he says he is, and if you believe that, then you are his disciple, and you have work to do, because he already did the work of giving us our salvation through his sacrificial, sacrificial death and redeeming resurrection, and now it's our turn. So as we celebrate today the work of God in our lives and our lay leadership and the reminder that we all have been ordained and appointed to do the work of reconciliation in the world, I'd like to take a look at our two scripture passages from this morning and the similar question that was asked in each passage and what this means for us. Last week, you all were introduced to a new prophet, the prophet Elisha. I was introduced to this prophet as well. I have read the Bible cover to cover a number of times in a number of different translations and have yet to discover the amazing workings of the prophet Elisha. <laughs> Apparently I have yet to, to, to read the Whitlock translation. I'm sorry, I had to do it. <laughs> so last week, you heard the story about the prophet, prophet Elisha in the last days of his life, and his last prophecy to King Jehoash, the king of Israel. This morning, we read about Elisha in his last moments with his mentor, the prophet Elijah, before he was taken up into heaven. The scripture tells us that many of God's other prophets had been following Elijah and Elisha through the country, and I think, in order to shake these guys, 
Elijah parts the waters of the Jordan River, and once he and his student are finally by themselves on the other side of the river, Elijah asks Elisha this simple question. Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? To which Elisha responds a double portion of his spirit. Now what this means is he's not asking to be greater than Elijah himself, but was using terms similar to inheritance laws of the time. Inheritance laws assigned a double portion of a father's estate to the firstborn son. So Elisha was expressing his desire to carry on Elijah's ministry. Elijah had cast the vision while Elisha now wanted to carry out the vision and to continue on with the ministry already established. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. Previously in the saga of these two prophets, Elijah had already been told to anoint Elisha, yet his response to Elisha's request meant that the issue rested solely with the Lord's sovereign good pleasure. Elijah left the answer to Elisha's request in God's hands. And we know how the story ends, as Elisha did witness the chariots taking his mentor up into heaven, and we know that he went on to do remarkable things as a prophet. And all because when he was asked the question, what can I do for you, he insisted on his vision. Now as we jump into our gospel lesson this morning, we see Jesus asking a very similar question to what Elijah asked. What do you want me to do for you? But before we get to this question, we have to take a moment to admire the tenacity of the blind beggar in this story. A blind man in first century Palestine is doomed, especially if they have no family to care for them. Since this guy was sitting by the road begging, we can assume he had no other means for his care. He was looked down upon by society. He could not sustain himself, so he had to rely on others' charity and goodwill. I would imagine that Jesus and his entourage of disciples and followers probably made quite a ruckus of sorts as they traveled from place to place. So the blind man, sitting by the roadside, one could imagine that the tenor and the pitch of the sound in the atmosphere caught the blind beggar's attention, causing him to ask what was happening. When he was told that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, he called out, Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. Those gathered around him quickly responded to his shouts by rebuking him and telling him to be quiet, to which he only shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Clearly, this blind beggar, somewhere along the line, had heard of Jesus and nothing was going to stop him from getting his attention. And it worked. Jesus stopped and asked to have the blind beggar brought to him, and the question was asked, what do you want me to do for you? Now come on, my friends, do you really think Jesus needed to ask this man that question? Do you think he didn't already know this man's answer? Yet, Jesus asked anyway. Of course he knew what this man wanted, yet he wanted to hear it from this man's very own lips. What do you want me to do for you? 
Lord, I want to see. The blind beggar replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Jesus stands before us right at this very moment and is asking all of us this exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? You see, we have this awesome opportunity to insist on our vision if we are just bold enough to ask for it. The blind beggar knew exactly what it was he wanted and he knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the person who could give it to him. And nothing, nothing was going to keep him from it. And especially not a crowd of people who wanted to shut him up. And like the blind man, Jesus knows exactly what it is that you want. Yet he wants to hear it from you himself. What is it you would have Jesus do for you? What is your vision upon which you need to insist? What vision do you want to cast in your family, in your personal life, in the life of your church family? Jesus Christ himself stands before you and he is asking, what do you want me to do for you? Insist on the healing of an incurable disease. Insist on reconciliation with an estranged family member or friend. Insist on courage to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Insist on freedom from your addiction. Insist that goodness and righteousness prevail in our homes, communities, and in our halls of government. Insist that all children be safe in their classrooms. Insist on your vision, whatever it may be. To our newly ordained elders and deacons, and to our installed elders and deacons, and actually to all of us here today, what is the vision upon which you need to insist for Rosedale? What is it you would have Jesus do for this community of faith? As a body, perhaps we insist on a vision for greater involvement in the community. Perhaps we insist on a vision for greater spiritual growth as individuals and collectively. Perhaps we insist on a vision of renewed discipleship and learning. Perhaps we insist on a vision of a place where the power of the Holy Spirit moves freely in and among us and its people so that growth of all kinds can be experienced in ways that we have never known before. And now it's more than just showing up. It's more than just sitting beside the road waiting for something to happen. The blind beggar took initiative so that he could insist on his vision, and we all need to do the same. My friends, insist on your vision, and do not let others keep you from getting to Jesus. Because there are so many people and things and ideas in our culture today that want to shut you up and shut you down. There are plenty of skeptics and critics who will do their best to cause you to doubt and to question the power of God and his workings in the world and in your life. So we need to shout all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus will hear our voices. And he will call us to him and ask, what do you want me to do for you? Like Elijah asked Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you? Again, Jesus stands before you and asks, what do you want me to do for you?
And only you can answer that question, and Jesus wants to hear you say it. Insist on your holy vision, my friends, and let nothing shut you up. Amen.